and welcome back to the program. Many of us remember the 1978 movie Midnight Express, where Billy Hayes is held and tortured by his Turkish captors as attempts are made to extract ransom from his family. Well, imagine today a young woman caught in a similar situation, kidnapped and held by brutal captors, not because of an attempt to smuggle drugs, but because she was trying to tell a story as a young and struggling and aspiring journalist. The locale was not Turkey but Mogadishu, Somalia, one of the most dangerous places on earth. What brought Amanda Lindau to this place, and what in her background gave her the strength and grace to survive a devastating ordeal? Her story tells us a great deal about her, and also about the indomitable resiliency of the human spirit. Amanda Lindau is the founder of Global Enrichment Foundation, a nonprofit that supports development and aid and education in Somalia and Kenya, and she's the author of a new memoir entitled The House in the Sky. Amanda Lindhout, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit about your experience first growing up in Canada and your fascination with National Geographic's trying to get a hold of them any way that you could and your initial fantasies really about seeing the world, about traveling to different parts of the world. I grew up in a poor household, poor by North American standards anyway, um, living with my single mom in a series of basement apartments. And my my older brother and I, after school, while my mom was working as a cashier at, at, at a grocery store, we would um, prowl the back alleys looking for garbage dumpsters that we would dive into, searching for any treasures we could find, but especially looking for empty bottles that we could take into a bottle depot for a couple of coins. And I would take my coins to my very favorite place, which was a used bookstore, and I would collect these old dog-eared back-issue copies of National Geographic magazine. And the images that I saw on those pages um, of the world, uh, this colorful and beautiful and exotic place, so different from the small agricultural city that I lived in in central Alberta um, was was my window onto everything that I considered to be um, exotic and wonderful. And so as a young person, I dreamed and longed of being out in the world. And then um, when I graduated from high school, university didn't really seem like much of an option considering my family's financial situation. And I, I began working and saving up every penny that I could so I could take myself out into the world. And, and I did that at 19 and spent most of my 20s traveling around with a backpack, going to over 50 countries around the world and discovering who I was out in the world at the same time that, I, you know, I was, I was discovering, you know, these wonderful cultures um, and people and stories. You started out in places that were a little less dangerous. Talk a little bit about some of those early journeys, some of the things that, that really got you hooked on this sense of travel and exploration. Yeah, the very first trip I took, I was, I was 19 years old, and I went to Venezuela. And that six-week trip was all that I needed to confirm that the world was accessible to me. And so... For the next several years, I, I traveled very consistently, stopping only to come back home, work any series of jobs, and save up all of my all of my coins so I could take myself again back out into the world. And I traveled extensively through 
so Central America through Southeast Asia and then later over through India um, and beyond. And as I traveled and crossed border after border after border, eventually going to over 50 countries, I was building up confidence about travel. And people would often ask me if traveling as a young woman out in the world was difficult. They assumed that, you know, it must be very challenging. But in fact, what I was finding is that the world is a very friendly place, that 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 people everywhere I went, you know, wanted to hold out a helping hand to me. And Nothing bad, nothing really bad had ever happened to me as a traveler, and I think until it does, you you never think that it will. Travel had become almost an addiction. It had become almost like a narcotic for you. Talk a little bit about that and this sense of always needing to to find someplace new, to travel to someplace different. Um, I don't know that I would use the word um, narcotic or addiction to describe the love that I had of travel, but what it felt like to me was this really vital part of my being that came alive when I was when I was out in the world. It I loved being out in the world in a in a in a different way than I loved being at home in in in. Central Alberta, Canada, there was aspects of myself that I discovered when, when I was, um, you know, in situations where I had to figure out, um, for myself, um, you know, how to get by and how to navigate, you know, the sometimes difficult waters of traveling, you know, how to, how to organize bus schedules or, or, um, train schedules in a country like India. And yet I was, I was figuring it out, and that felt um, that felt really empowering to me. I think I was not so unlike other people in their 20s who are trying to figure out who they are in the world, and, and for some people in their 20s, that is going to university or starting a new job or a family, and for me, it was being out in the world. I was learning a lot about myself um, in relation to the world. When did journalism and wanting to be a journalist become a part of the equation as, as something you wanted to do? I was 26 years old, and um, it was 2006, and it was my first trip to Africa, which was where I had always wanted to go. Um, from the time that I was a little girl, I'd always wanted to go to Africa, so it was a really important trip, and I was traveling as I did back then with with a backpack on and alone. And I pulled up in front of a one-star hotel in Addis Ababa, and there was a bearded Australian man sitting on the porch of this hotel reading a book. And this was Nigel Brennan, an Australian photographer whom I would later, much later, be kidnapped with, but who I was meeting for the first time. And he was traveling around Ethiopia and funding his travels by selling the images that he was taking. And I thought, how meaningful to be sharing the stories and the images of these remarkable places in the world with other people. And it was always the cultures and the stories um, that I was learning about that motivated me to keep going and crossing borders. And I think up until that point, I had been traveling without a lot of purpose other than, um, 
you know, selfish purpose, really, as, as a young person wanting to have an adventure and wanting to have fun and, and really doing that out in the world. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but there wasn't a greater meaning to the travels at that point. And then when I met Nigel Brennan, it just inspired something in me, a desire to want to share these stories. And so I went back home to Canada and I invested in a fancy camera and some photography classes and and I decided I was going to try my hand at journalism. And so I launched myself back out into the world and based myself in places like Kabul, Afghanistan and Baghdad, Iraq. And I was I was young and I was really ambitious, but I wasn't especially trained or experienced. And so I I, I had some small degree of success during that year and a half or so that I was um, attempting to find my footing in journalism. I sincerely cared about these human interest stories that I was sharing with my community at home through a column that I was writing and then later as a TV journalist for a variety of different um, networks, adventures and misadventures of TV reporting, working at one point for Iranian state media, and then later working for a 24-hour news channel, France 24 out of Paris. Um, and it was the summer of 2008 after I'd been living in Baghdad for seven months and, you know, consistently reporting from there. And, you know, I feel like I had found my footing um, as much as a person with my limited experience could that I set my sights again back on Africa and particularly the country of Somalia and the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding there. And that is what led me to Somalia in in August of 2008. What did you know about how dangerous Somalia was? I I was certainly aware that Somalia is extremely dangerous. Somalia is often referred to in the media as the most dangerous country in the world and also the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. And so I think a person becomes conditioned somewhat to the environment that they surround themselves by. So at this point, I had been living in a conflict zone for the better part of a year. And so though people warned me about going to Somalia, and I did a tremendous amount of research in going there, I wasn't completely naive, but... I don't think that, um, you know, a young, mostly inexperienced freelancer like myself could have been really properly prepared for the trip that I was about to make. And Nigel Brennan was with you when you made this trip. Exactly. So the Nigel Brennan, who at this point was an ex-boyfriend and friend, decided he was going to join me for this one-week work trip we were going to take into Somalia. And so we met in Kenya, where we organized the trip, and and then that August we left bound for this one-week work trip, or so we thought, into the country. Talk a little bit about what went into organizing for the trip. What what plans had you made? What did how did you think it was going to unfold? Um, well, we made the same type of plans that I think any any journalist going into the country would make. We hired a fixer, somebody to organize logistics. The 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 best known um, and trusted fixer in in the country, and organized through him the 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 level of security that he told us we would need, um, and and so we we arrived thinking that we had everything in place, um, 
But when our plane touched down in Mogadishu, I I did know immediately after we disembarked from the plane that this was a war zone unlike any of the other ones that I had been to. What did you sense was different? There was a palpable danger in the air that just felt more intense than I had ever experienced up until that point. And the streets were completely empty. I remember driving away with our security team from the airport to the hotel and being struck by the desolate streets. And I asked the driver about that, why? And he shrugged his shoulders and told me um, that, as he put it, war had broken out in the streets a couple of hours earlier and many people had died. And I asked about that and he shrugged his shoulders. He didn't know how many people died. People die every day in Somalia, he said. But people people in Mogadishu were so afraid to leave their homes. Um, and, and this is what I saw, you know, in those those first days in, in, in Mogadishu, that the markets were empty, the streets were empty. The situation was so intense and so severe that people weren't even venturing out of their own homes. And that was new to me. That was different because what I had seen in places like Kabul and Baghdad, despite the daily bombings and the and the conflict unfolding there, people still did their best to just go on with life and, and do what they needed to do to survive. You know, people were in the markets. People, you know, people were going on with things despite the difficult circumstances, but that was different in Mogadishu. And the original guide pawned you off on, on one of his assistants. Well, when we arrived, we realized we weren't the only journalists in Mogadishu. There was two um, reporters from National Geographic magazine who were there and working with the same fixer and staying at the same hotel. And so our fixer, who up until that point um, had, had, had told Nigel and I he was going to be working directly with us, um, you know, turned us over to one of his colleagues, um, a young Somali man who who I had also hired as my as my cameraman for this week, um, Abdi Elmi. And so, yes, he was now in charge of the security um, and logistics for Nigel and I. Was there any point, as the streets were empty, as you had this palpable sense that this place was different? even than other war zones you had been in. Was there a sense of fear that, that either you had or, or Nigel had or anything that you, you overtly expressed to each other? Um, I think both Nigel and I expressed to each other in those first days that, um, you know, this we were in an active conflict zone, and that was, that was unsettling. I re- recall Nigel um, saying to me at different times in those first days that he had a bad feeling. And I can't say that I shared that that um, ominous feeling that something bad was about to happen, but I certainly recognized that, you know, we were in a, in a really dangerous place. But you also settle into the experience. So, you know, day one and day two passed without incident. And we were working towards completing that week and telling the specific story that we had come um, to witness, which was an internally displaced people's camp and this incredible Somali woman, Dr. Hawa Abdi, that is running that camp. And so it was on August 23rd, our third day in the country, when we were en route to Dr. Hawa Abdi's camp that everything changed for us. And the worst case scenario 
unfolded. What happened in those initial moments and, and your first reactions to it all? So when our vehicle was stopped en route to this internally displaced people's camp by a group of teenage criminals holding AK-47s with their faces wrapped in checkered scarves and we were taken out of our vehicle. I knew immediately that this was bad, but I didn't comprehend the enormity of the situation and that we were actually being abducted. I think it's hard for the brain actually to comprehend a moment like that, which is so traumatic and so shocking to the system. I wanted to believe that it was a robbery or when I realized it wasn't a robbery that they would let us go when they realized that both Nigel and I were in the country because we sincerely cared about the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding there. So it was a slow understanding that A, we were being taken hostage, and B, this was not going to be over soon when I understood that there was a ransom demand of $1.5 million made for each one of us. And coming from a family of no financial means, my mother was working as a cashier at a bakery the the day that I was taken. So a million and a half dollars for my family was like asking for the moon. It was an impossibility at that point. Did you think, though, that this would would end quickly, that perhaps had been a mistake or that you and or Nigel would be able to talk your way out of it? Certainly you couldn't have possibly anticipated in those moments that this would last for 460 days. No, I think we both wanted to believe every single day that we woke up that we were one day closer to getting out of there and that and that end was going to be any day now. It... But as time went on, um, you know, at about the one-year mark, you do start to lose hope. You know, initially, Nigel and I might have harbored some belief that we could talk our way out of it, but I think we let go of that pretty quickly when it was it, it was clear that that just was not going to happen, that this was about money. And because both Nigel and I come from countries that have the same policy as your government here in, in the United States, mm-hmm. that the government does not pay ransoms, which is a good policy to have and one that I support, but still nonetheless, in our case, our captors were quite clear. If the money wasn't paid, that they would kill us, they would behead us. What did you come to understand about the nature of the captors themselves and, and what motivated them? There was essentially two groups um, among our captors, there was the young guards that were holding us hostage day in and day out who were in some way almost hostages themselves. They didn't, they were young, they were young, most of them teenagers who didn't have the freedom to come and go from the house that we were held in. So the longer we were held, the more frustrated they also got. Um, you know, they were a young group of boys who were largely uneducated. Um, some of them were orphans. One of them, a 14-year-old, had horrible scars on his body where he had been injured in a bomb blast. Um, but they were young men who initially didn't seem particularly keen to be part of this, and yet it was, as I understood it, one of the very few opportunities to make um, some money for themselves and their families that was available to them. So they were they, they were young boys who weren't so unlike you know, youth I had observed all over the world who liked to kick around a soccer ball and who talked about 
the girls they wanted to marry and, and, and that kind of thing. And then there was the group of leaders who were also young men, um, but who had an education, who had traveled around the world a little bit and who were manipulating, um, the young men that they had recruited as soldiers, um, and who were in charge of the negotiations with our families. Talk a little bit about what you knew, if anything, about those negotiations, about what was going on outside the place you were being held. Well, at that point, I really had very, very, very little information about anything that was happening outside of the four walls that um, I was being held in together with Nigel. We, we really had no access to information. I would later learn that my mother had been... Um, had been negotiating for um, for me from the very start, communicating with um, one of these commanders on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, negotiating that demand down, um, which she was able to successfully get down to almost half of what they initially wanted after 460 days when, it, when the whole ordeal finally finished. But at that time, I had very limited information and very limited contact with my family at all. There were a handful in that whole time of phone calls that were scripted phone calls that were very short, maybe 30 to 60 seconds long, where they would put me on the phone and I would have some message to convey to my mother to put pressure on her so that she would know that if the money wasn't paid, I was going to be killed. If you had been able to talk to your mother privately at all, even for a few minutes, what would you have told her? I I think what I would have wanted to express to my mother or anybody in my family or anybody that I loved would have been um, my love for them and also um, my regret that I had made the choice, though, made the choice, not, of course, not wanting to hurt anybody, most of all my family, made the choices that had led me to being in Somalia. I think I had not given enough um, thought to the what-if scenario. I may have been willing to assume the risk for myself of going to these places, but I don't know um, that I gave enough thought in my 20s to... The what-if scenarios, who will be affected if something does go wrong, if something does happen to me? And so I'm, I'm sure I would have expressed that to my family had I, had I been given the chance. Talk a little bit about the condition that you were in 400 days plus into this and, and really weakened state, I mean, the, the state you were in at that point. Um, the, the conditions deteriorated very much from, from the first month where Nigel and I, we were held together and, and we were treated decently and given food and, and clean water to later after a failed escape attempt, which we write about in the book in, in, in great detail, this, this heart stopping and exhilarating and devastating day where we were free for 45 minutes before being recaptured and following that everything changed and the conditions became very bad. I was isolated for the remaining 10 months in the dark and, and subjected to all sorts of horrific abuse. Um, so that by the time that I was released on day number 460, I was, I was very physically sick. I had been starved and, and I was extremely malnourished. Um, 
and very emotionally fragile. My survival had become, by that point, not about making it through a day, but by, about making it through each minute because it had become, at that point, so brutal. Um, yeah. What kept you going? The title of the book, A House in the Sky, refers to the the dreams that you had, what you started to create for yourself as a way to, to get through this. Yeah, my mind during the very darkest um, periods of captivity when I was literally um, kept in a pitch black room, really went into the depths of despair. Um, But my mind is also what saved me. My mind and imagination and, and, and memory were able to pull me out of those depths and I named the book A House in the Sky because A House in the Sky for me was this place I could go within my own mind to to remember the life that I had, had lived and all of the beautiful places that I had been and to think about the life that I hoped to go on to have. Um, it was a place where I could I could see my family, I could remember in granular detail every aspect of the world that was outside of 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 the darkness that I was held in I could remember the sky over overhead even over that dark room and dark house and and brutality that I was experiencing that was still out there and it really became my my refuge and it was a place that I could go as often as I needed and I found that the more I conditioned my mind to think to to think positively to 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 take me out of the um the fear and the um panic and the stress and, and the anxiety of the day-to-day minute-by-minute reality of my existence the more I could could consciously try to put my mind on positive thoughts and positive words and memories, the mind became stronger and stronger and stronger and it became easier to go there. The mind, as, 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 as we write in the book, becomes in a situation like that almost muscular and the more you exercise that ability of the mind to, to, to be positive, um, it literally saved me. Talk about what it was like when you were finally released. So on day 460, it it started like the 459 before it, and in fact, I didn't know that I was going to be released. Um, and it ended much the same way as it began in in um, in the middle of the desert, where I was turned over to another group of men that I didn't know or recognized, and it was it was very scary. Um, until someone thrust a phone at me and um, my mother was on the other end telling me, Amanda, you're free. And the next day I was flown to a hospital in Nairobi, Kenya, where I was reunited with my mom. And that moment was 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 so joyous, but it was also um, the first day of understanding that my recovery was was also not going to be easy. I was I was really physically ill. But the emotional journey that I have been on from 
from that day till now, this journey of recovery um, has has been in some regards as challenging um, to comprehend and to deal with and to process as the experience in captivity was. Um, it's it's day by day and it's minute by minute. And for me, it has really come down to the choices that I make every single day, the the myriad of choices I have to make every day to not let that experience define me, to not let the fears that I now have about the world hold me back from living the life that I want to live. I want to be somebody that is still out in the world and experiencing the beauty of the world and not let that experience keep me contained in the, you know, safe, warm home that I live in now in, in, in the Canadian Rocky Mountains, which would be easy to do. It would be easy to stay put and be afraid of the world considering what happened to me. But every day I make choices towards the Amanda that I want to be rather than the Amanda that was shaped by the experience. I'm I'm I take steps every day in that direction, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. And forgiveness for me has been a really key part of this process. Forgiveness of self for the ways that my decision to go to Somalia affected my family. And forgiveness of those that that hurt me. Um and that's something that I do for myself, not for them, but it's something that more than anything, has helped me move forward with my life. And finally, Amanda, tell us a little bit about the Global Enrichment Foundation, which you, you've been involved in, and the work that it's doing back in Somalia. There was a, a promise that I made myself when I was in captivity that if if I made it out of there, I wanted to live a life of service. Um, I think when you don't know if you're going to live or die, you, you ask yourself the big questions about life and what is meaningful and what you want to do. And for me, it was clear that if I if I if I was so lucky to receive a second chance at life, I wanted to make it count and make it matter. And so, I had an understanding and awareness um, of the conditions that are creating young people like my captors, who are shaped by the war and the violence of that country. And so with that um, awareness, I felt a, a sense of responsibility that that I would want to do something to contribute to and support positive change in that country. And so after I was released, I established the Global Enrichment Foundation. Um, and you fast forward almost four years to today, and the Global Enrichment Foundation, you know, has legs of its own now. We We have programs and initiatives within Dr. Hawa Abdi's camp, the camp that I was en route to the day that I was taken. We have programs that have reached hundreds of thousands of people in Somalia, and it's something very good that has come out of a situation that um, could otherwise be seen as very bad, and it's good not only for the many, many people who are benefiting from these programs, but it's also been really good for me because I have chosen is compassion instead of anger. And that just reiterates um, the choice that I make to forgive every single day by making all of these choices towards 
the person that I want to be, which is forgiving and compassionate and 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 being of service, it um, it takes me closer to to full recovery and to the person that I that I want to be and I think that I can be. Amanda Lindhout, her book is A House in the Sky. It is just out from Scribner. Amanda, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 